Today we are going to continue our series on church history, and our focus again is on the nonconformists in England. Uh, again, we are talking about the Puritans and other dissenting groups in England. And the picture that you see, um, it's a little bit dark, but this is essentially a, a picture, one artist's rendering of what he thought it would have looked like for the English pilgrims leaving Holland in the early 1600s to go to America. And as one Puritan writer said, we must make haste out of Babylon. So the Puritans who had left England, gone to Holland seeking religious freedom and a, a place where they could worship in the way that they chose, that they believed was of God, and would not be persecuted. Uh, originally, they had gone to Holland. We'll touch on that later. Okay, so I want to uh, go back a little bit to William Perkins. His dates are 1558 to 1602. He was only 44 years old when he died. Uh, so he died a rather young man. But he was a rhetorician, expositor, theologian, and pastor in England. And he was one of the principal architects of the early Puritan movement. If you remember from last time, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth, there were already English dissenters. They did not want to worship within the Church of England as it was, as they perceived far too close to uh, conforming to Roman Catholic practice and doctrine. And some of the Puritans wanted to work for reform within the church, and some were beginning to press for uh, moving outside of the Church of England. But by the time of his death, Perkins's writings in England were outselling those of John Calvin, Theodore Beza, another Calvinist reformer, and Henry Bullinger combined. So Perkins had a great impact upon a whole generation of Puritans, and he is often called the father of Puritanism. Many people today are not really even aware of him. Again, he was very early in the scene, and not a lot of his writings are read today. However, um, theologians and scholars, some of them are beginning to rediscover his works. Born the year that Queen Elizabeth I ascended to the English throne, Perkins conformed to many of the policies and procedures imposed by the Elizabethan settlement. In other words, the settlement where everybody had to conform to the Church of England, worship within the Church of England, be dutiful members of the Church of England, and not cause any problems. Uh, and these, but these Puritans did remain squarely within the Church of England, and Perkins was one of those. He did remain, however, sympathetic to the nonconformist Puritans and even faced disciplinary action for his support. He worked throughout his career to bring further reform to the Church of England. Perkins was a prolific author who penned over 40 works, many of which were published after his death. In addition to writing, he also served as a fellow at Christ College and as a lecturer at St. Andrew's Church in Cambridge. And Christ College is one of the colleges within the University of Cambridge in England. 
He was a firm proponent of reform theology, particularly the theology of Theodore, Theodore Beza and John Calvin. And in addition, he was a staunch defender of basic Protestant ideals, specifically the five sola, with a particular emphasis on solus Christus, only Christ, and sola scriptura, only scripture. Little is known of Perkins' childhood and upbringing. His family was evidently of some means, since in June 1577, at age 19, Perkins was enrolled as a pensioner. And that word pensioner could be confusing. You know, in modern terms, we would think of this as an old person who was retired on a pension, but that's not what it meant in Perkins' day. It meant he was an undergraduate, or a Bachelor of Arts student who lives at his own expense uh, at Christ College in Cambridge. The academic program at Cambridge ensured that Perkins was trained in the tradition of the reformed scholastic framework. He received his BA, Bachelor of Arts in 1581, and his MA, Master of Arts in 1584, and like many uh, young men of means enrolled in one of England's premier universities, he liked to party. As a youth, he indulged in recklessness, profanity, and drunkenness. Supposedly, Perkins was convicted of the error of his ways after he heard a Cambridge mother say to her child, hold your tongue, or I will give you to drunken Perkins yonder. Whether or not the story is true, it is clear that Perkins had a religious awakening sometime between 1581 and 1584 during his time at Cambridge, and certainly he would have sat under the teaching of renowned Puritan scholars at Cambridge, so he would have heard the gospel. In 1584, after receiving his Master of Arts, Perkins was elected as a Fellow of Christ College, a post he held until 1594. And in 1585, he became a lecturer of St. Andrew the Great Church in Cambridge, a post he held until his death. Following his ordination, Perkins also preached his first sermons to the prisoners of the Cambridge jail. On one celebrated occasion, Perkins encountered a young man who was going to be executed for his crimes and who feared he was shortly going to be in hell. Perkins convinced the man that, through Christ, God could forgive his sins. The formerly distraught youth faced his execution with manly composure as a result. Perkins served as dean of Christ College, Oxford, from 1590 to 1591. He catechized the students at Corpus Christi College, again at Cambridge, on Thursday afternoons, lecturing on the Ten Commandments, in a manner that deeply impressed the students. On Sunday afternoons, he worked as an advisor, counseling the spiritually distressed. On January 13, 1587, Perkins preached a sermon denouncing the practice of kneeling to receive communion, as was common practice in the Church of England, and was ultimately called before the vice chancellor, uh, who actually not a church authority, but a political authority, as a result, and kneeling to receive communion was the established practice in the Church of England, and this was just another attempt of Perkins to reform the church. 
During the final set of trials against Puritan ministers in 1590 to 91, and I, I'd like to say, just as an aside here, you know, we remember that Elizabeth I was a Protestant queen. And so it's surprising to find that under her rule, Protestants were sometimes persecuted and sometimes put to death. You know, we would think of, you know, gosh, she would probably prosecute Catholics. Certainly that would be expected. Um, but among other people that she prosecuted, she also prosecuted and uh, sometimes had executed those Puritans that simply would not conform to the Church of England. So Perkins confirmed that he had discussed a certain work called the Book of Discipline with some Puritan ministers, some of whom were standing trial at that time, but claimed that he could not remember who he had talked to. Perkins was a proponent of double predestination and was a major proponent of introducing the thought of Theodore Beza to England. He viewed the reform concept of the covenant of grace, which is central to reformed soteriology or the doctrine of salvation and double predestination to be a doctrine of great consoling value. He was responsible for the publication in English of Beza's famous chart about double predestination. And I don't have Beza's chart reproduced. It's, it, it's long and complicated. It would be hard to show on a PowerPoint slide. But basically, double predestination has to do with the theological understanding of both predestination to election and predestination to reprobation. God from all eternity decrees some to election and positively intervenes in their lives to work regeneration and faith by a monergistic, in other words, the work of just one source. Those words come from Greek roots, mon meaning one, energy, energistic, uh, referring to work. So the work of one source, God alone, and it's his work of grace. To the non-elect, God withholds this monergistic work of grace, passing them by and leaving them to themselves. God does not monergistically work sin or unbelief in their lives. Perkins' clear explanation and application of Reformed theological principles brought him into controversy with other religious figures who espoused Arminianism. Some of you may have heard the term Arminianism. Um, we're simply going to scratch the surface, scratches, uh, on this doctrine and uh, some of the controversies that arose around it, uh, but we'll do our best to kind of lay it out. Now, Perkins' views on double predestination made him a major target of Jacobus Arminius, or James Arminius, the uh, Dutch Reformed clergyman who opposed the doctrine of predestination, and really I should say who opposed the doctrine of predestination the way many Calvinists viewed it. Arminius, born in 1559 or 1560, was educated at Leiden University in the Netherlands from 1576 to 1582. Although the university in Leiden was solidly reformed, it had influences from Lutheran, Zwinglian, and Anabaptist views in addition to Calvinism. 
some teachers and pastors in Leiden held to more liberal ideas, such as that civil authorities did have jurisdiction in some church affairs. Again, if you're a Calvinist, you know, really it should be the church informing the state how to run things. That it was wrong to punish and execute heretics, which was a truly novel concept uh, in the society of that day. And that Lutherans, Calvinists, and Anabaptists could unite around core tenets. Again, almost a revolutionary way of thinking. Now, in 1582, Arminius began studying under Theodore Beza at Geneva. So this is the same Calvinist theologian where Perkins was getting a lot of his ideas. And again, there's another rather dark portrait of Jacobus Arminius, um, but he looked like most people did at that time. Arminius answered the call to pastor at Amsterdam in 1587, delivering Sunday and midweek sermons. After being tested by the church leaders, he was ordained in 1588. He had gained a reputation as good preacher and faithful pastor, although from time to time, things he said or taught led some to believe he wasn't solidly in the Calvinist camp. At Amsterdam, Arminius taught a number of sermons on the Epistle of Romans. In discussing Romans 7, he taught that man, through grace and rebirth, did not have to live in bondage to sin. He asserted that Romans 7.14 was speaking of a man living under the law and convicted of sin by the Holy Spirit, yet not presently regenerated. Romans 7.14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. Arminius's view met with some resistance, and some detractors labeled him Pelagian or semi-Pelagian for teaching that an unregenerate man could feel such conviction and desire for salvation, even with the influence of of God's law and the Holy Spirit. So can an unregenerate person really be genuinely called by the Holy Spirit? Can God really call such a one to himself? That was the question. Reform thinkers believe that to feel conviction and the desire to be saved indicated God's work of salvation in the human soul. So if you were feeling conviction of sin, were you in the process of getting born again, were you not born again, but you might become born again, and so forth. So it, it kind of brought a question up. Now, Pelagianism is the belief that original sin did not taint human nature, and that humans have the free will to achieve human perfection without divine grace. And this belief is named for Pelagius, who lived approximately 355 to 420 AD, an early Christian British ascetic or monk. Pelagianism had been decisively condemned at the 418 Council of Carthage. So Pelagius's idea that people, without, apart from God's divine working in their life, could produce something other than sin and could possibly 
you know, become saved or perfected or made acceptable to God without his divine work in their life, that's just not possible according to the church, church authorities. Now, the two systems of Calvinism and Arminianism share both history and many doctrines, and they both come out of the history of Christian theology. And I would like to say at this point, there, you know, the people who put forth these ideas are long dead. They are not here to speak for themselves. It is possible, and it has certainly happened throughout church history, where some people have taken their ideas and perhaps articulated them in a way that if those people, had they heard those things, would have said, I don't believe that. You've twisted my words. And a lot of times when it comes to um, theological ideas that are no longer held by the majority of Christians, if they're minority viewpoints, they get pushed to the side, restated, perhaps twisted in some ways, and may not accurately represent what the people who originally came up with these ideas felt or thought. There are some Arminians who say that, you know, Calvinists twist what we say and they don't clearly articulate the Arminian viewpoint. So Arminianism is related to Calvin histor Calvinism historically, but because of their differences over the doctrines of divine predestination and election, Many people view these schools of thought as opposed to each other. Uh, so some people would view these ideas as, you know, just completely opposite camps from each other. Other people see more of a connection between Arminianism and Calvinism. So the distinction is whether God allows his desire to save all to be resisted by an individual's will as is held in the Arminian doctrine, or if God only desires to save some people and that his grace is irresistible to those whom God has chosen to save. Put another way, is God's sovereignty shown in part through his allowance of free decisions? So now we, you know, I think you can begin to see we're getting into an area of you know, the basic dichotomy of, or apparent dichotomy of predestination versus free will. So that, you know, began to emerge as a, a point of contention. Some Calvinists assert that the Arminian perspective presents a synergistic or combined system of salvation and therefore is not only by grace, but is based on both grace and man's initiative. However, many Arminians at that time and to this day firmly reject this conclusion. Many consider the theological differences between Calvinism and Arminianism to be crucial differences in doctrines, while others find them to be relatively minor. After studying under Theodore Beza, Jacobus Arminius rejected his teacher's theology that it is God who unconditionally elects some for salvation. Upon examination of the scriptures, he came to the belief that the election of God was of believers, thereby making it 
conditional on faith. Arminius' views were challenged by the Dutch Calvinists, but Arminius died in 1609 before a national synod or a national church council could occur. The Dutch church and civil authorities had requested a 14-page paper from Arminius outlining his views. But Arminius' followers, uh, since Arminius died before he could put out this work, uh, they did not want to adopt their leader's name. They did not want to be, because it was common practice, and this was often uh, something done within the Roman Catholic Church, any heretic, if that heretic had followers, they called the heretics by the name of the person they were following. But uh, Arminius's followers didn't want to get labeled as Arminians, so they, they ended up calling themselves the Remonstrants, which basically means that they were arguing against Calvinism. And... Um, up on the screen, it, it's probably dark. It's from a um, 16th century engraving of a bunch of Dutch guys standing around arguing religion. <laughs> the remonstrance replied to the Dutch authorities, crafting the five articles of remonstrance in which they expressed their points of divergence with the stricter Calvinism of the Belgic Confession. And if you remember, you know, we went through the Heidelberg Catechism. There's also the Belgic Confession. There are other uh, statements of faith, essentially, is what they are, or uh, catechal, you know, uh, documents uh, that basically articulate Calvinist ideas. The five articles of remonstrance are... And as we go through these, try to keep in mind the Calvinist belief, which was summarized in the acronym TULIP, um, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. So in contrast, the five articles of remonstrance are conditional election. Election is conditional upon faith in Christ and that God elects to salvation those who he knows beforehand will have faith in him. Unlimited atonement. Christ died for all, but salvation is limited to those who believe in Christ. Third, total depravity. So with this, we see there's certainly a point of similarity between Calvinism and Arminianism. Man is unable to do the will of God and cannot save himself apart from the grace of God. And then fourth, prevenient grace. Uh, and prevenient simply means divine grace that precedes human decision. But man has the free will to resist the prevenient grace of God. So as opposed to Calvinistic irresistible grace, in other words, those whom God has chosen to save, his grace is, they find it irresistible. They cannot choose against the grace of God. Here, we see that Arminius was proposing that people could 
resist the grace of God. And then fifth, the conditional preservation of the saints. So um, apart from the Calvinistic idea, once saved, always saved, um, it's possible that some can fall away. So the remonstrance initially argued that it may be conditional upon the believer to remain in Christ. Sometime between 1610 and the official proceeding of the Synod of Dort, and the Synod of Dort was a big uh, conference of civil and church authorities in Holland uh, in 1618, the, re the remonstrance became fully persuaded in their minds that the scriptures taught that a true believer was capable of falling away from faith and perishing eternally as an unbeliever. The remonstrants and followers of Arminius initially found themselves on the losing side as the Dutch authorities, again, the political authorities and the Dutch Reformed Church were solidly in the Calvinist Reformed camp. The Calvinist Synod of Dort from 1618 to 1619, convening for the purpose of condemning Arminius' theology, declared it and its adherents anathemas. In other words, they were effectively excommunicated and banished. The Synod defined the five points of Calvinism and persecuted Arminian pastors who remained in the Netherlands. But in spite of persecution, the remonstrance continued in Holland as a distinct church, and again and again where Calvinism was taught, Arminianism raised its head. Arminians and their followers were subject to persecution, loss of employment and positions, and exile. Now, what is most important perhaps for us is to understand that both Calvinism and Arminianism and their variants continued to influence European and English Christians throughout the 17th century. Arminian ideas would later influence English dissenters such as the General Baptists and John and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement. So although Arminian thought was persecuted in Holland, it continued throughout other uh, religious movements. Man many evangelical church movements, which were Arminian in theology and had their start in the 17th century in the old world, found fertile soil in the new world. And persecution in the old world often served to push these groups west into the Americas. Now, before we return to William Perkins, I just want to say also, there are still remonstrant churches in Europe. They're, they still exist. There are some in Holland. Um, you know, you can go to the church buildings and, you know, uh, worship in their church services. They're operating to this day. Um, most of them have joined uh, forces with liberal wings of Protestantism. So if you were to go to one of their church services, there might be um, a homosexual pastor. So they've gone very liberal in the 21st century, but they still exist. 
Now, returning to William Perkins, Puritan leader in Elizabeth, Elizabethan England, it should be noticed, uh, noted that he influenced generations of Puritan leaders. William Ames, Puritan theologian, whose marrow of theology was the most popular systematic theology of the time and who became professor of theology in the Netherlands. John Robinson, the founder of Congregationalism in Leiden, the Netherlands, and pastor of the group, which went on to found the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. Thomas Goodwin, Congregationalist minister and Puritan theologian, who was a vital part of the Westminster Assembly, from which the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and the Catechism come. Paul Baines, Puritan preacher and successor to Perkins as lecturer at the Church of St. Andrew the Great in Cambridge, England. Samuel Ward, Puritan preacher and master of Sydney Sussex College, the University of Cambridge, England. Phineas Fletcher, a poet. Thomas Drax, English Puritan and theologian. Thomas Taylor, Puritan preacher and doctor of divinity at the University of Cambridge. James Usher, Archbishop of Armagh in Ireland. And James Usher should also be noted because he put together a fairly large work in which he used biblical um, uh, elements to put together essentially a writing on how old the earth is. And um, conservative Christians to this day look at that work as a very important work. James Montague, master of Sydney Sussex College and later Bishop of Winchester. Richard Sibbs, Puritan preacher of Gray's Inn and master at Catherine's Hall, known for his eloquence and comforting sermons. John Cotton, a very famous colonial American Puritan minister and theologian of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Thomas Hooker, colonial American Puritan minister and founder of the Connecticut Colony. In, in America, North America. Thomas Shepard, colonial American Puritan minister and theologian known for his leadership in the antinomian controversy. Hmm, we may want to explore that at some point. And finally, and although really the list is much longer, Jonathan Edwards, American revivalist preacher in the 18th century, uh, he was also a philosopher and a Congregationalist Protestant theologian, very famous American minister. So now I want to look a little bit more at some of the separatists. And, um, you know, these, these names were used interchangeably, these labels. So separatists are dissenters. Some dissenters are separatists, but not all of them, and so on. So English dissenters or English separatists were Protestant Christians who separated from the Church of England in the 17th and 18th centuries. And it was a long fight for them to um, be able to worship freely in the way they thought they should be able to. Um, English dissenters opposed state interference in religious matters and founded their own churches, educational establishments, and communities. And because this was certainly during the age of exploration, 
uh, when the New World was opening up, some of these groups emigrated to the New World, especially to the 13 colonies, which later became the United States and Canada. Now, a group called Brownists founded the Plymouth Colony in Massachusetts. And you're probably going to go, wait a minute, I thought that was the Pilgrims. Well, they were called Brownists back in their own day. They were named after Robert Brown, who was born at Tolthorpe Hall in Rutland, England in the 1550s. A majority of the separatists aboard the Mayflower in 1620 were Brownists, and indeed, the Pilgrims were known for about 200 years, the Pilgrims who had come to the New World, as the Brownist emigration. Robert Brown studied at Cambridge University where he was influenced by Puritan theologians, including Thomas Cartwright, uh, a, a Puritan theologian who lived from 1535 to 1603. Brown became a lecturer at St. Mary's Church, Islington, where his dissident preaching against the doctrines and disciplines of the Church of England began to attract attention. During 1578, Brown returned to Cambridge University and came under the influence of Richard Greenham, Puritan rector of Dry Drayton. Brown came to reject the Puritan view of reform from within the Anglican church and started to look outside the established church. By 1581, Brown had become the leader of the separatist movement in England and attempted to set up a separate church outside the Church of England. And that would get you killed, but he tried to do it anyway. So of course he was arrested, but released on the advice of his kinsman, William Cecil, an important political figure. Brown and his companions left England and moved to Middleburg in the Netherlands later in 1581. And the painting that you see reproduced here, um, it's a little less dark than some of them. Um, that is a painting of an artist's uh, conception of what it looked like when the separatists left England to go they had not left yet to go to the New World, but they first went to Holland. Um, and so that's a, uh, a portrait of them leaving England to go to Holland. The Brownists set up a church on what they conceived to be the New Testament model, but the community broke up within two years owing to internal dissensions. Brown was only an active separatist from 1579 to 1585 and eventually returned to the Church of England. The separatist movement was controversial. Under the Act of Uniformity of 1559, it was illegal not to attend the official Church of England services. So not only would you be persecuted if you set up your own church or had your own services, uh, it was illegal not to go to the Church of England, and accompanied uh, with that uh, was a fine of one shilling for each Miss Sunday and Holy Day. And that would have been, I think, the equivalent in modern money of uh, probably several weeks worth of wages for people at that time. So if you were just 
you know, the average English person living at that time, it would be very expensive for you not to go to church, to the right church. And the penalties also included imprisonment and larger fines for conducting unofficial services. You know, so a lot of people would think, especially those of us living today, we would think, why not just have your own church in your home or something like that? Why not have an underground church? And many Christians have done that in many parts of the world throughout the ages. Um, and a lot of Protestants did do that in England. But, you know, the authorities were like, you're not going to get off um, doing that. You, you know, you've got to support the Church of England no matter what whether you go to the church and attend the services and pay your tithes, or if you don't, you'll be fined, maybe end up in jail and owe a lot of money. And there was actually a London underground church, which we mention here. The Seditious Sectaries Act of 1593 was specifically aimed at out outlawing the Brownists. So even though Robert Brown returned to the Church of England, the people who held to the views he had held, these separatist ideas, they retained that name. That's how they were looked at. You know, today we would talk about them as the pilgrims or the separatists, but back then they were called the Brownists. Uh, again, following the Roman Catholic idea of you name the followers of a heretic after the name of the heretic. Under this policy, the London Underground Church from 1566 and then Robert Brown and his followers in Norfolk during the 1580s were repeatedly imprisoned. Henry Barrow, John Greenwood, and John Penry were executed for sedition in 1593. These men were all followers of Brown. Brown had taken his followers into ex exile in Middleburg, Holland, and Penry had urged the London separatists to emigrate in order to escape persecution. So after his death, they went to Amsterdam. Now, you might think that fleeing to another country would keep you safe from the English authorities, but it didn't. Uh, England and Holland had diplomatic relationships with each other, and English authorities were always trying to get the Dutch authorities to extradite or seize these English um, uh, dissidents and, and separatists and bring them back to England uh, for trial. Now, uh, we want to talk about an important Puritan separatist by the name of William Brewster. And if you remember any of your American history, hopefully this name is familiar to you. Brewster lived from 1568 to April 10th, 1644. Initially, he was an English government official, but he is perhaps most notable for being a passenger on the ship, the Mayflower, that brought the pilgrims to the United States, what is now the United States in 1620, to the Plymouth Colony as they founded it. In Plymouth Colony, by virtue of his education and existing stature with those emigrating from the Netherlands, Brewster, a Brownist or Puritan separatist, became senior elder and the leader of the community. Brewster hailed from Scrooby, Nottinghamshire, England. Following the campaign led by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Bancroft, 
to force Puritan ministers out of the Church of England, the Brewsters joined the Brownist Church led by John Robertson, Robinson and Richard Clifton, inviting them to meet in their manor house in Scrooby. So here was a house church being set up in the house of a, an educated, fairly well-to-do govern, English government official. Restrictions and pressures applied by the authorities convinced the congregation of a need to emigrate to the more sympathetic atmosphere of Holland. So as Brown had before him, Brewster organized a journey to the Netherlands of these persecuted English Christians. But leaving England at that time without permission was illegal. So, needless to say, the departure was a complex matter. They couldn't go in one large group. They had to go in small groups um, and uh, try to hide their activities as much as possible. Now, on its first attempt in 1607, the group was arrested at Scotia Creek in England. But in 1608, Brewster and others were successful in leaving from the Humber, which is a port in England. Robinson's church lived for a year in Amsterdam, but in 1609, one of their fellow Brownist churches there, led by John Smith, became the first Baptist church. Um, so by calling him Baptist, even though we haven't talked about, uh, you know, we've talked about German Baptists, but we haven't really talked about English Baptists, and we will. But Baptists were essentially Arminian in their theology. So the, the Puritan separatists who were Calvinists viewed a group out of their own group leaving to join a general Baptist church was essentially for them a journey out of Calvinism and into Arminianism. So this was not viewed as a good thing. Now here in, you see pictured, and it, this is a little dark too, unfortunately, but uh, hopefully you can see that. Um, this is today the Leyden American Pilgrim Museum. This is a place in Leyden, Holland. You can, you know, jump on a ship or take a plane um, and go over there and you can see this building. And this is a museum that was set up uh, as a way to memorialize the English Protestants who were living in Leyden who later went to America. Now, in the controversy that followed, Robinson and Brewster decided to take their church to Leyden. And I should also add that this is one of the buildings in which Puritans actually lived and worked while they were in, in Leyden, Holland. In Leyden, the group managed to make a living, but it was not easy. Many of the Puritan separatists or pilgrims lived in Leyden, Holland, a city of about 30,000 inhabitants at that time, residing in small houses be, behind the Klocksteeg opposite the Peterskirk. So the Peterskirk is a large Calvinist uh, Dutch Reformed church. So they lived in this part of Holland where they felt they would be relatively undisturbed and where they might continue to live and worship as they believed they should. The success of the congregation in Leyden was mixed. Leyden was a thriving industrial center at that time, 
and many members were able to support themselves working at Leiden University or in the textile, printing, and brewing trades. William Brewster had struggled for money when he was in Amsterdam, but in Leiden he was able to teach English to university students. However, Brewster became a prime mover in the decision to sail for North America and a principal organizer. However, due to writing and publishing religious materials that the Church of England considered seditious, Brewster went into hiding. So again, the British authorities were able to extend past England itself and they were searching for him on the continent and they were telling the Dutch authorities, you have to find this man and send him back to England. Now, by 1617, the Puritan separatists uh, congregation was stable and relatively secure, but there were ongoing issues which needed to be resolved. Now, this is in a time when, um, you know, a lot of times in, in our world today, we think of people emigrating to different countries and how they can be assimilated or not assimilated or become part of a society that's very different there from their, the society that they came from, maybe a different language is spoken. All these difficulties were certainly in play for these Puritan Christ, uh, Englishmen. And Bradford noted that many members of the congregation were showing signs of early aging, compounding the difficulties which some had in supporting themselves. In England, they had lived more or less in a rural agrarian lifestyle, basically farming. But here they were in a Dutch city. Many of them didn't know Dutch, didn't, you know, couldn't really speak it very well. Um, and now they had to work in what were essentially, uh, you know, 16th century versions of factories. They were working in, in buildings cooped up for long hours um, and, not the best living conditions. And so this was taking a toll on these people. A few had spent all their savings and so gave up and returned to England. And the leaders feared that more would follow and that the congregation would become unsustainable. Younger members had begun leaving to find employment and adventure elsewhere. And again, at this time, um, Many reports about exploration in the New World were coming back to Europe. And the whole view of the New World was it's a treasure trove of gold and all kinds of resources just sitting there waiting to be exploited. And so a lot of people began to think, maybe my life will be better if I can make it to the New World. But of course, there were many uncertainties about moving to a place such as America as stories had come back about failed colonies. There were groups that had gone to establish colonies. The group in, group in Roanoke, Virginia, essentially disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to them. Um, there were fears that the indigenous people would be violent, that there would be no source of food or water, that they might be exposed to unknown diseases, and that travel by sea was always hazardous. Balancing all of this was the local political situation, which was becoming in danger of being unstable. 
the truce was faltering in the 30, in the rather 80 years war. So there were continual wars in Europe um, and the Spanish were very much, um, and that's a whole thing that you can study on your own, the relationship between Holland and Spain. Um, and there was a fear over what the attitudes of Spain might be toward them because of, of course, Spain and Portugal had taken a big lead, really had gotten a head start in exploring and taking advantage of all that the new world had to offer. But eventually they decided they would go and in 1620 the pilgrims emigration began. They left Leyden by canal going to Delfshaven in the Netherlands where they embarked on a ship called the Speedwell, which took them to Southampton, England. But the Speedwell proved leaky and had to be sold, so they transferred to the Mayflower. The separatists looked to their deacon, John Carver, and to Robert Cushman to carry on negotiations with the appropriate officials in London to gain legal sanction for a new world colony. Because after all, these are not wealthy people. Uh, they don't have a lot of money to pay for a transatlantic voyage. They don't have the money to set up shop in the New World because, of course, once you set foot on the soil of the New World, you are starting completely from scratch. There's, you know, all the food, clothing, and shelter you have to produce yourself. And um, they weren't able to take much in the way of provisions with them. Um, they were able to persuade a, a group of London investors to invest, to give them funds to make this voyage, to set up this colony, not realizing that the legal documents they were signing essentially gave all rights to any, any measure of success. Uh, it was owned by these investors. Um, but as time went on, uh, you know, a lot transpires. You know, it's kind of, it would be kind of like if somebody came to you today and said, Elon Musk has a spaceship that you can get in and you can go to the moon. How about I invest in you and here's a bunch of money and a bunch of stuff to take with you to the moon. I want you to set up a colony on the moon. Who would, who would volunteer for that? <laughs> we have... <laughs> We have one taker. <laughs> I think I'll text Elon and let him know after the service. <laughs> but really, that's kind of that's what it would be like. So the Mayflower uh, undertook the famous voyage to New England in 1620 alone. Originally, it, it had looked like they would be able to take both the Speedwell and the Mayflower, but they could not. They could only take one ship. Now, in 1620, when it came time for the Mayflower to depart, Brewster, William Brewster, rejoined the congregation. He had been in hiding uh, in Holland for over a year due to the controversies around his, the pamphlets he had written that were critical of suppressive English and Scottish, Scottish religious laws put forth by King James. At the time of his return, Brewster was the highest ranking layperson of the congregation and would be their designated spiritual leader in the new world. He was the only member of the congregation who had a university education. Brewster left without his family with plans to have them come out on a later voyage. 
The Mayflower departed Plymouth in England in September of 1620. Not, I should say, a good time to make a transatlantic voyage in a ship with sails. The 100-foot vessel carried 102 passengers and a crew of 30 to 40 in extremely cramped conditions. The boat was only 100 feet long. If you want to get an idea of what that's like, honestly, this church is about the size of the Mayflower. There is a replica of the Mayflower. Um, it is in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts. You can take tours on it. They've actually, it, the, the replica was built in the 1950s. And um, this year is, you know, we're right in the midst of the 400th anniversary of this small group of English Puritans coming to the New World. Um, they had plans um, to have a big uh, elaborate celebration in Massachusetts for this event. However, because of COVID, it's basically shut down. Although I think the museums are, so you can tour the ship. I've been, been to the uh, replica of Plymouth Colony. If you ever have a chance to go see it, I highly recommend it. It's very educational and interesting. Um, and you can, you know, what they've tried to do is set up how life was very much like in the early uh, part of the 1600s in uh, New England. During the voyage, the ship was buffeted by strong westerly gales. The caulking of its planks was failing to keep out seawater, and the passengers' berths were not always dry. And actually, uh, there were a few pregnant women on board, and one woman gave birth during the voyage. The child was named Oceanus and survived the trip. Um, and the, um, the painting up there, again, rather dark. You know, the Puritans, I guess, they just lived in a dark time. Uh, but that's, uh, you may have seen that before. That's essentially uh, a painting of again, an artist's idea of what they would have dressed like and how they would have looked on their way to church on a winter Sunday morning. On the journey, there were two deaths, a crew member and a passenger. After being blown off course by gales, the Mayflower made a landing at Cape Cod. The Mayflower passengers had sighted land on November the 9th, 1620, after enduring miserable conditions for about 65 days and William Brewster led them in reading Psalm 100 as a prayer of thanksgiving. And so this Thanksgiving, um, just remember this small group of people who were looking for the freedom to worship in the way they believed they should be worshiping in a place uh, where they essentially had to create brand new lives for themselves. So... That's the pilgrims. And that concludes my uh, message for today. Thanks.